we want to talk about the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you have your Bibles, this is one of those messages where you can turn and follow because we'll pretty much be in one spot. Now, you only find the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. It's not in any of the other Gospels. And in order to understand this parable, you sort of need to get the background that, that begins with a question that sets it all up. And so go to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You know, even the world knows the expression of the Good Samaritan, don't they? Uh, people who never read the Bible. They've got laws on the books in certain states that are called Good Samaritan laws. I remember hearing one story, and I forget what state it was, but a trucker came upon an accident where a car had rolled over and someone was trapped inside and the back of the car had caught on fire and the trucker went to pull the individual out of the car but they were stuck and he was a strong trucker. He eventually was able to wrestle them out of the car and save them but he broke their collarbone in the process. They sued the truck driver. So some states have, that's just one of many examples, some states have established what they call Good Samaritan laws. It got to the point where people were afraid to stop and help somebody because I might get sued. And so they made these laws to protect people that if you're stopping to help a person who's in serious distress, you can't then sue them later after they save your life. So um, even the world knows the story of the Good Samaritan. It says in verse 25, now a certain lawyer stood up and he tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this lawyer, he's, he's setting Jesus up. He wants to know what's he gonna say about this dif difficult question. And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? <laughs> now he's a lawyer, he thinks you know what's in the law, right? So he answers his question with a question. He answered and said, uh, well, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter six, and then you should love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus 19.18. And they all knew these commandments, love the Lord, love your neighbor. And Jesus said, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. They thought, well that was too simple, and the people kind of snickered and they thought, well you already knew the answer. So wanting to justify himself, he says to Jesus in verse 29, well, who is my neighbor? Because you need to understand in the time of Christ, they had great debates talking about, well, yeah, you love your neighbor, but what exactly is a neighbor? And they started breaking that down and, and they said, well, certainly it's not everybody that lives next to you because maybe some of them don't love God and if they don't worship God, then you technically don't have to love them, they're not your neighbor. And, they had all these definitions about what qualifies you to be a neighbor. And then Jesus answers that bigger question with a parable. He said, a certain man, now this may have been a true story, certainly could have happened. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. I'll read it through and then we'll back up. He fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and he looked and he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed and came to where he was, he saw him and had compassion. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And on the next day, he, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him, and when you, if you spend more, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer answered and said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is a, um, a really a shocking story when you think about it because uh, the Jews would have voted the Samaritan the least likely to actually stop and help the man who had fallen among thieves. Now this parable really shares the whole gospel. You've got that man who's going from Jerusalem. This is the city of God. That's the high ground down to Jericho. Jerusalem was blessed. Jericho was cursed. You can read where Joshua curses Jericho. He's not going up. He's going down. And he fell. The whole human race has fallen. And the Bible says that this man is robbed. Well, you can read in the scriptures who is the robber and the thief you can read there in John 10, 10, the thief, the devil, does not come except to steal and to kill and to, to destroy. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. So this man falls like the human race. And what does the thief do? Strips him, partly because clothing had value back then, unless they gambled for Jesus' clothing. And also, they did not have credit cards. If you traveled with money, you had to carry it with you. You didn't have that many options and they usually would sew it or hide it in their clothes or they had a belt that was tied real tight and, and so just to make sure that uh, you got the money, you took their clothes. By the way, what happened to Adam and Eve after the devil got done with them? Did they have a wardrobe malfunction? They did. And you read in the Bible about the man filled with the devils is going around naked, except he doesn't even care. Adam and Eve at least looked for fig leaves. The devil strips us of our dignity. He robs us, takes everything of value, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead, which is a fitting description of the human race because we're sort of alive, but if you don't have the sun, you don't have the sun, you don't have life. He that has the sun has life. He that has not the sun has not life. And Paul says that before we're saved, we are dead in trespasses and sins, and we are living under a death decree. We are dying. If nobody stops to help this man, he's dead. He needs some help. And so, the man is laying there, but he's not all dead. He's only half dead. And in my mind, I think he's kind of semi-conscious. He's wounded. He can't get up. And he's laying there, on this very dangerous stretch of road, the thieves have just robbed him. By the way, this part of the road has a section that's called the Valley of the Shadow of, the de of Death. The road between Jerusalem 
and Jericho, there were some badlands there in Judea that had rugged canyons and ravines and, and the thieves loved to hide out in those canyons and they'd spring upon unsuspecting travelers and rob them and then they'd head out again like the old banditos. So he didn't know if they're gonna come back again, finish them off. He's laying there, he's in shock, he's afraid and he's praying. And wouldn't you know it, while he's praying, he hears something, he looks up the road with his one good eye because he's half dead, he can see out of one eye. And he sees the priest coming down the road. And he thinks to himself, praise the Lord. God has heard my prayer. It's the pastor. He's come to help. But it says he doesn't even slow down. He changes lanes and gets as far away as he can from this man, and we're assuming the man's come from Jerusalem, he's come from the priest's place of worship, he's of the same people, and he doesn't even ask him for any questions or can I help you, or just keeps on going. Now, some people have said that might be, you know, according, he's half dead, dead is unclean for a Jew. You don't touch a dead body. He's wounded, he's bleeding, blood was unclean. He's maybe thinking, I, you know, I don't want to defile myself, so I can't do anything. Then they also had a theology that basically said, if something bad happened to you, it's because you're a bad person. And he might be thinking, well, he must have been really bad because um, uh, look what happened to him. Probably getting what he deserves. I don't want to interfere with God's justice. And he keeps on going. And this man laying there sees the priest go, and he's going, help, help, help. Priest walk goes on down the road. Now it's not looking good. He looks up, he sees buzzards starting to circle. I was up in the hills this week and I saw buzzards beginning to circle. And I thought to myself, why is that happening? They, they, if they do that, there's something dead. And finally our friend said, oh yeah, the dogs found a dead fox and drug it up. He said, I threw it off in the woods. I said, that's why, that's why they're here. So this guy looks up. Buzzards are circling. He can't escape. He figures he's dying. But then he hears something around the bend in the trail. A Levite, it's a deacon, comes. And things are looking up because he at least stops. And he looks at him. But then he passes by on the other side. He doesn't touch him, doesn't offer anything, doesn't say, would you like a drink of water out under this hot sun? And uh, maybe, you know, it tells us in the book of James that sometimes we'll see a brother or sister in need and we don't do anything but we say a prayer. Maybe he said a prayer. Now, have you ever done that? You see somebody broke down on the side of the road and you think, well, I can't do anything but I'm gonna pray for him. And, uh, you know, I used to stop and pick up every hitchhiker I saw because I used to hitchhike and I had no car and I made a foolish vow while I was on the road praying for a ride and I said, Lord, if I ever get a car, I will pick up every hitchhiker I see. And for a while I tried to do that and then it just, you know, I asked God to forgive me because it wasn't a vow I could really keep up on. And then I got a little more discriminating. You know, my first cars barely ran, but then as life goes on and you go from being hippie to yuppie, and you start to progress, you get better cars, 
And then I started kind of evaluating the hitchhikers as I went by and said, that guy doesn't look like he's had a bath in a long time. And I looked at my nice upholstery and said, I'm gonna pray for him. <laughs> so maybe he said a prayer. Maybe he said, I'll, you know, I'll call the tow truck when I get to Jericho. But he doesn't do anything. And this man, he's going, ah, 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 help. And the Levite leaves. Now these are his own people. So as he's laying there and he's fading in and out of consciousness, it says that a certain Samaritan, now you've got to understand if you don't already that Samaritans and Jews did not get along back then. Samaritans actually tried to interrupt the building of the temple. First they offered to help and when they said no, you can't help because their religion was compromised. They didn't believe the same things. They said this won't go well. Then the Samaritans became their enemies and tried to stop the building of the temple. They even went so far as to sneak up at night and throw dead pigs into the construction site because then the Jews would have to go through these long elaborate cleansing ceremonies and the animosity just got worse over the years. Samaritans did not get along with the Jews. Um, matter of fact, it was so bad in the time of Christ that if the shadow of a Samaritan landed on you, the Pharisees said you're unclean. That's why they left Jesus at the well when they went to shop in Samaria because they didn't want Jesus to be defiled by a Samaritan because they had to go get food as they were going through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem and the disciples came back and he's talking to a Samaritan woman no less. Her shadow all over him. And so they didn't like each other. They thought there was no good Samaritan unless it was a dead Samaritan. You remember? One time Jesus was going through Samaria and they would not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem to worship. The Samaritans believe you should only worship on Mount Gerizim. And they said, if you're going to Jerusalem, don't even ask for a hotel. And James and John got so mad, they said, Lord, give us the power of Elijah. We will call fire down from heaven and burn them all up. And they thought Jesus was gonna endorse that. Now later stages of the church history, they would have endorsed that. But Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. So you understand, they did not like each other. Even the apostles were ready to call fire down from heaven and burn up a whole Samaritan town. So this man's laying in the road, and guess who comes? And he sees them, and they can tell from the way they're dressed, he goes, Oh no, this is not good. The pastor and the deacon left me here. What's this guy gonna do? And he sees the Samaritan approach him and the Samaritan's looking to the right and looking left and the man's thinking, oh no, he's hoping there's no witnesses, he's gonna finish me off. But he's actually wondering, are the thieves nearby? Because you know, when you stop to help someone's just been robbed, you, you don't know, there could still be someone with a gun nearby. And um, he comes to him and he leans down. I can just picture the man on the road going, oh, no, no. And he puts his hand on his shoulder. He says, let's relax. I'm going to help you. They spoke the same language. They could understand each other. And the Bible says he ministered to him. Look at what it does. It says he bandaged, he had compassion on him. And compassion is connected with the word sympathy, pathos, feeling, Empathy, it means you feel what another person is feeling. And even though he knew he was a Jew, his heart went out to him. 
You know, it's interesting. If it was someone's donkey in the road, probably all three of them would have stopped. But since it was a person from another race, two of them were willing to walk by. And he goes to him, and he has mercy on him, and it says he bandages his wounds, he pours in oil and wine, then he puts him on his own beast, then he pays for his medical bills, and of course he gives his time. That's really amazing when you think about it. Where did he get the bandages? Did he have a little first aid kit on his donkey? I think he probably tore up some of his own clothes so he could wrap up his wounds. It's like the righteousness of Christ to bind his wounds. And what does the oil represent? Holy Spirit. And the wine, they used it as an astringent, the blood of the covenant. He's taking his resources. And don't miss that it says he came to him. Who do you think the Good Samaritan represents? That's Jesus. You know, Jesus was something of a half-breed. Samaritans were sort of half-Jew, half-Assyrian, half-Canaanite. You ever looked at Jesus' family tree? Did he have Tamar and Rahab and Ruth? Was Jesus half-God and half-man? But here he comes, he came unto his own and his own received him not. He came to where the man was and Jesus through the blood of the covenant and the gift of the Holy Spirit and his robe of righteousness. And then the man is weak, he can't move. And he puts him on his own beast. Ostensibly what that means, he said, I'll trade places with you. I will not ride, I'll walk, you ride. So what does Jesus do with us? Doesn't he trade places? He gives us what he deserves and he takes what we deserve. And then he brings him down to Jericho and he takes him to an inn and he says to the innkeeper, well first of all he takes care of him while he's there but he has to go on his way and so he leaves money, two denarius, that's like two days wages which is pretty generous and he said, you take care of him I travel on this road, I'm a merchant. When I come back again, I will repay you if you spend more than the two denarius cost. So he says, I will pay. Jesus said, I will pay. He gives us his strength. He puts him on his own animal. The robe of righteousness, the oil, the grape juice, everything in the story is telling us about the gospel. So the one that the religious leaders hated so much, the Samaritans, that proves that he's the one who ends up being the good guy. And how was Jesus treated by most of his own people? Crucify him, crucify him. Of course, many of his own people also followed him. But this is an illustration of the whole gospel. Now, maybe you did not know that there's a story in this story. You notice it talked about Jerusalem, Jericho, Samaria. I'm gonna take you to the Old Testament. Jesus may have had this story in mind when this happened. Go to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. There is a war. Israel is warring with Judah. And there was a bad king 
of Israel and God was punishing him, King Ahaz. And because he had turned to idolatry and worshiping Baal, God withdrew his protection. He was attacked by Damascus. Go to verse, oh, go to verse five. Halfway through verse five, after the Syrians um, decimated uh, the people of Judah in a war, it says, then he, King Ahaz, was delivered into the hand of the king of Israel. His name was Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who defeated him with a great slaughter. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, in a battle against Judea, he killed 120,000. Now these are Jews fighting Jews. And that's sad, the northern kingdom is fighting the south. 120,000 in Judah in one day, valiant men, because they'd forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And it says a king's son was killed and some of his cabinet. And not only did they kill them, you go to verse eight, and the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, they carried away captive their brethren, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, women and children that had survived the battle. They're taking them to be their slaves and they're not being treated very well. And like captives in a war, they're being taken from one kingdom to another, barefoot, many of them naked, hungry, thirsty. They're not giving them anything. The soldiers are treating them brutally. But a prophet, verse nine. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria. And he said to them, look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he's delivered them into your hand, but you've killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. You've gone too far. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem, there's a Jerusalem, to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? They were involved in idolatry. Now hear me therefore, return the captives who you have taken from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, of, uh, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim in the northern kingdom, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Ber Ber Berechiah, the son of Melshilamoth, Jezekina, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Had Hadali, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, you shall not bring the captives here, for we have already offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel, the northern kingdom. So the armed men left the captives in the spoil before the leaders of the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up, the ones we mentioned above. They rose up and they took the captives from the spoil. They clothed those who were naked among them. They dressed them. They gave them sandals. They gave them food and drink. They anointed them. They took care of the ones that were sick or wounded. And they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. Is this starting to sound familiar? And they brought them to their brethren in Jericho, to the city of palm trees, and they returned to Samaria. Some of the Samaritans were good Samaritans in the northern kingdom. And they took care of all these captives, and they did many of the same things the good Samaritan did. Well, maybe I'm stretching things, but I wonder if Jesus maybe had this story in mind when he shared the parable. Now we're all caught in a war, and we've all been terribly mistreated, and we've all suffered, and sometimes we think it's every man for himself. But you know, in the judgment, the Lord's pretty clear about what the criteria is. He said, do you love your brother? 
If you turn in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 25, and you thought I was done. Matthew chapter 25, this won't take long. Go to verse 31. We all know this parable. Only found here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he'll sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he'll set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he goes on in the parable and he turns to the goats. And he said, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, because I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison. There's six things that are mentioned. And you did not minister to me. And they'll say, Lord, of course we would have helped you if we'd seen you in that condition. He said, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least, not just one of my brethren, one of the least of these, my brethren. Figure out whatever human being you think is the least. He says, do it even to the least. He says, if you don't care for them, you don't care for me. The Bible says, how can you say you love God who you have not seen? You can't love your neighbor who you have seen, who is made in his image. So what's the criteria in the judgment? You know, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works, but if we are saved by grace, there will be works. If our hearts are thankful and we love the Lord, we will care about each other. Now, I believe a good church should be involved in practical ministry of caring for the needs, visiting the sick, having a medical need, going to the hospital, going to the prisons, and going to feed the hungry, and giving drink to the thirsty, and clothing, and all those things. But it's not just the practical things, while it is that, we should offer those who are naked the robe of his righteousness. We should offer those who are hungry the bread of life. We should offer those who are thirsty the living water. We should offer those who are separated and alone. They're alienated from God. We should make adonement and help bring them to the Savior so they're not alone. Those who are imprisoned by sin, we should show them how to be free through the power of the gospel. All of these things that are mentioned really encapsulate all the suffering of humanity. In fact, I challenge you, think for a moment. Name one kind of misery in the world that isn't somehow covered by one of those categories I just mentioned. In prison, sick, lonely, naked, hungry, thirsty. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced all those things. Was he naked? Was he hungry? He hadn't eaten in 24 hours. Was he thirsty? Do we have to guess? He said, I thirst. Was he a stranger? They didn't know who he was. Was he in prison? You don't get a lot more in prison being nailed to one spot. 
all of the suffering of humanity Jesus took when he hung on the cross. But wait, there's more. God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, and God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and God is omnipresent, he can be everywhere all at once, but I wanna add one more, it's sort of a subcategory. God is omnipathic, pathos means feeling. Now stay with me, this is really important. So when Jesus said, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, you know, we sort of figure that's sort of an analogy that, you know, I kind of feel the pain of others and if you hurt them, it hurts me. If you're a parent, if someone hurts your child, does it hurt you? If you're married, if someone hurts your spouse, does it hurt you? It should, right? So we feel it that way, but God, it's a lot, lot more than that. Does God know everything? Does God know how you feel right now? He, does he know every pain in your body? Does he know every pain in your life? Every trial? Does he know how you feel? Further than that, does he feel what you feel? If he knows everything, does he feel what you feel? Think of all the suffering in the world today. If God feels everything that the human race is feeling, all the misery and the woe and the pain and the heartache all around the planet multiplied by eight billion, that's a lot of pain. God is saying anything you do to relieve the suffering of any one of my children, I feel better. He feels it. Now, was that theologically accurate? I think I built a case that the Lord really does feel you are really doing something to make God feel better when you relieve the suffering of any human or animal. He cares. He feels everything, right? And then I don't want to rush past a very important point. The Good Samaritan, going back to our story in Luke, he said, when I come again, Wait a second, where did the Samaritan bring the man who fell among thieves? To the inn. Where does Jesus bring people after they're saved? The church. He says, I'm bringing them to a place and I'm gonna pay the price and I'm gonna ask them to care for them. Notice what he says, till I come again. He doesn't say if I come again. He said, when I come again, I will repay you. Did you get that? everyone's gonna get paid. We will all be rewarded, and then some. There is a payday. The Lord wants to know, do you have a heart for others? Do you feel when other people feel something? If you don't, and I've had to pray this before, I said, Lord, I don't love like you love. I know I don't love people like you do. In fact, I've often said, I wouldn't mind being a pastor if there weren't people involved. It's the biggest problem. I said, Lord, you love them so much. Help me love them more. A lot of people are hirelings. You know, we kind of do it because of what's in it for us. But Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He loves them. Like David was willing to die for a sheep. I don't know if I'm yet ready to die for a sheep. Hopefully I'd die for you. But a sheep? I said, Lord, help me love more. 
How many of you would like to have God give you more love for your neighbor? I remember hearing an incredible story during the Civil War. There was a brutal battle outside Fredericksburg between the North and the South, and uh, 8,000 men were either killed or wounded in the no man's land. They had a stone wall on one side of this field and they had ramparts and a stone wall on the other side of the field and they had been trying to attack and take the territory from the others and in the valley between them, it was just, it was carnage. And after the battle subsided and everyone had retreated behind their lines, nobody could venture out to get the wounded. And there were thousands of men that were laying out there, injured, crying out in pain, and so many of them, as the hours went by, said, water, water, bring me water. There was this one soldier, Richard Kirkland. He was a sergeant. He went to the general and he said, let me go out on the field and bring some water. He says, I can't stand to listen to these men suffer like that. I said, you'll get shot as soon as you go over the wall. He said, I'm willing to take that risk. And first he said no, but he kept insisting because it was just oh, hour after hour, these men all crying for help, help, water, water. And uh, he said, let me go, let me go. And the general said, okay. He said, but we're not letting you take a white flag out with you. And we don't want to make it look like we're surrendering. So Richard Kirkland had his buddies load him up with several canteens. He went over the wall and two or three soldiers from the north, he was a southerner, fired at him and then their friends stopped him and said, no, no, he's just bringing water to the injured soldiers. And then they noticed he was not just bringing water to the Confederate soldiers, he was bringing water to the northern soldiers. And one by one, for 90 minutes, he went out there in the battle lines, true story. And he would straighten the limbs of those that were wounded and do what he could and prop up their heads and he'd give them a drink and he'd go from one to another and he actually had to go back, get more water, come back out again. It's interesting, no one else offered to go with him. But he was willing to die to relieve the suffering of his fellow men. And that's what Jesus did. He was willing to die to save us from sin, which is what causes your suffering. You just want Jesus to take away your suffering. He can't do that without taking away your sin because it's the sin that causes the suffering. A year later, unfortunately, Kirkland died in battle. And they put up a monument, you can still see, I think it's on the screen, or it was, of, um, they called it the, the Angel of um, Mari's Heights or Hill. Yeah, because he had spent all this time trying to rescue other people. There's someone who's come into this world to rescue us. We have all fallen. We've had our back to the New Jerusalem. The devil stripped us. He's wounded us. And um, left us half dead. Without outside help, we're doomed. But Jesus came into this world, had compassion on us. He's willing to bind up our wounds to apply the oil and the wine, to give us strength, to pay the cost of our healing, but we need to be willing to let him do that to us. We need to come to him and ask him. He came to offer his life 
for us. He said, I will walk, you ride. He'll give us his strength. Would you like to ask him today and say, Lord, I want, I want to make that decision to accept your forgiveness. And then how many of you would like to say, Lord, help me love people more. Help me do more in practical ways to help people and giving them also the bread of life and the living water, spiritual ways. Can I pray with you?